Good morning, Northside. James was telling me before we started this recording that he has exactly an hour and 53 minutes to fill up with, with audio and video. So I hope you guys are ready to go. You're strapped in because uh, we have almost two hours worth of you looking at me and me talking, which is what I love to do most. So, no, in all seriousness, um, one thing I want to bring to your attention before we get started is, if you have not yet read the uh, assigned scripture reading, I would really encourage you to do so. Um, It kind of will be helpful, especially as we get to my last point uh, in the sermon. And so, I'll smile, you can pause and uh, read that if you have not yet already. All right. The other thing that I want to bring to your attention before we get started is, um, in this section, Paul uses a Greek word uh, that is um, called ataktos, and it's translated in the ESV, the NIV, and the CSB as idol or idleness. Those are three major translations. Um, However, the true meaning of this word is something like disorderly. And it's important for me to bring this up to you because um, if you're reading any commentaries or you're going to uh, hear maybe any sermons preached on this, uh, it's important to, to, that you will know that this is actually how the word is used. But uh, many commentators also agree that idleness is the best translation given the context of Paul's admonition in this passage. Uh, the people are living in a disorderly fashion by refusing to work or they are living in idleness. So uh, we will see that this disorder is actually rooted in the fact that they are not living according to their created purpose. That's something we'll get over. Uh, we'll get into a little bit later. So before, uh, so the translation of ataktos as idleness is perfectly acceptable. Now, with that being said, Second Thessalonians three verses six through fifteen. Hear the word of the Lord. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the, tra- uh, with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But... With toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not go grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which is truth. And our prayer is that of our brother Jesus Christ, that you would sanctify us in the truth this morning. Father, that you would bless your word going forth, uh, even through this medium of video. Uh, Father, we pray that you would open up um, our ears and our eyes and our hearts to to see and to hear and to receive the beauty and good news of Jesus Christ and, and the teaching that you have given us in your word. Father, we need your help. 
We need your Holy Spirit to be to go out and uh, and open up our our hearts and our minds. And we know that you will because you promised to do so, and you are a faithful God. Pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. So, amid the chaos and disorder of this fallen world, one of the things that we long for is rest. You see, the lives that we live here and the work we do is often wearisome and hard. Yes, there are times where that might not be so, but if we are honest, we are often feeling more weary than energized. In fact, even if we are energized about accomplishing something, we know that at some point in this process, we will be met with weariness or frustration. And so if you are like me, then probably you recognize the importance of hard work, but when it actually comes to doing that work, you'd really rather not. You would really um, rather use your time resting than giving all of this uh, extra effort and energy uh, and time into accomplishing something. Case in point for me is, is doing this video even right now. When Jeff called me asking if we were uh, informing me about what the session was going to decide, I was really hoping that, there was not, uh, that we were going to just cancel service altogether because my spring break got moved this week, and I didn't really want to do too much work. I wanted to rest. But you see, that's not what ended up being decided. And that's just an example of really how wicked my own heart is. But maybe you're the opposite of me. Maybe you thrive on hard work. You love to overcome challenges. uh, And you enjoy giving all of your time, effort, and energy to whatever project you're working on. Whether that's at home or at work. But still, you find yourself longing for rest and hope that you will be able to experience some at some point during the week. The desire to put out good work and the desire for rest are actually two good desires that we have. However, since we are sinners, we pervert these good desires. What do I mean? Well, the idleness we read of in this passage is the perversion of our good desire for rest. And on the flip side, our desire to put out good work can often cause us to be so consumed with our worldly work that we grow spiritually idle. Both of these stem from the problem of forgetting that this fallen world is not our eternity. You see, the Thessalonian church was believing that Jesus Christ had already returned and that they were living in paradise. They had a misunderstanding of the end times. And Paul is addressing the false conclusion that some of them have made that they no longer needed to do any work. Rather, they were, they were being a burden to others in the church. And the big idea of this passage this morning is that because this fallen world is not our eternity, we must wait patiently for our promised rest. We must tenderly warn our unrepentant uh, siblings in the Lord, and we must work as citizens of heaven. And so my first point, because this fallen world is not our eternity, we must wait patiently for our promised rest. And so as we read, Paul is addressing the sin of idleness that has taken root in, the, in some members of the Thessalonian church. And again, as I said earlier, sin is often a perversion of some good desire that we have. 
Therefore, if idleness is the perversion of our good desire for rest, we must ask the question of when did rest actually begin? And if we read through our Bibles, we come to the book of Genesis and we realize that rest is actually woven into the fabric of creation. We read in Genesis 2 that God had finished his work of creation and then he rested. He enjoyed the fruits of his labor. And this isn't just something for us to glance over, but we must recognize that God is establishing a pattern for us to follow. And we know this because when we read the Ten Commandments, it actually tells us so. Uh, the command for us to keep a Sabbath day rest is rooted in God's rest after creation. Just go read Exodus 20 verses 8 through 11. And it's important for us to also understand that rest is a break from worldly work that brings refreshment or restoration. It is something that we were, as we see, created for, created to enjoy with our God. However, it is not all that we were created for. We also see in Genesis that God gives Adam a job in the garden. He is to work it and to keep it or to guard it. And so we must recognize that work is not a product of the fall, but it is also woven into the fabric of God's good creation. And in fact, it is Adam's failure to do his job in guarding the garden that actually results in the fall. And that leads to our work being toilsome and frustrating. So rest wasn't replaced with work after the fall. Rather, work became cursed. And this is all a result of rejecting or losing communion with our God. And so to put it another way, all of this was a result of Adam's choosing to live in a disorderly fashion. Therefore, this disorder pervades all of our life. We feel it. We live in it. We know the reality of this disorder. However, the good news of the gospel is that this disorder will not last forever. King Jesus is putting all things back into right order. He is making all things new. The second Adam did not fail like the first. And through his perfect work, he has secured for all who trust in him the hope, the reality of a restored communion with God and life in the new heavens and new earth. Jesus gives us the promise of an eternity in a land where perfect rest reigns. However, it is a rest we must patiently wait for. That being said, the Lord has not left us without designated times to experience this promised rest here in this world. The fourth commandment tells us that the designated time we experience the height of our promised rest is on the Lord's day. Remember, rest brings us refreshment and restoration. And Psalm 23 tells us that it is the Lord alone who gives this restoration. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Or in the NIV, he refreshes my soul. God has woven into creation specific times for us to work and specific times for us to rest. Therefore, when we seek our rest elsewhere, we are actually going against God's created order in attempting to steal for ourselves time that does not belong to us. 
Part of exercising our faith is trusting that this order that God has set is good and striving to live in harmony with it. Work in life this side of the fall is stressful and it's wearisome and we feel that. We are constantly also confronted with the temptation to seek our rest in disordered ways. The temptation can be towards laziness, putting off work or refusing to work because it is too taxing. The temptation can can be towards pornography or sexual immorality. You see, the, the release of dopamine that accompanies these activities drastically, powerfully affects our mood. It can also be towards drunkenness or gluttony, ways to numb ourselves to the stress of this fallen world. The temptation to seek disordered rest is seen in anything that we run to in order uh, that is not the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it is he alone who refreshes our soul. St. Augustine even said famously that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And so the lie that we often believe is that these sins are going to give us the rest we truly desire. That we can actually experience the true rest we long for here, now, this side of heaven, in this fallen world. But the Lord tells us that this is not so. He tells us that we need to be recreated. We need to be brought into a new world to experience that perfect rest we truly desire. And the good news is that Jesus has given us this promise that through him we are guaranteed this eternity. Jesus has given us the promise that through our union with him in the Holy Spirit, we are sealed with the promise of entering into the Lord's rest and given a sure hope of living in a new reality. Therefore, we must wait on the Lord to bring us into the fullness of this promise. And we can do so patiently because we have been given the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So the sin of some in the Thessalonian church is that they are seeking their promised rest now. And we do the same thing. They are living in disorder by refusing to work. Because they have a misunderstanding of the end times. And they are being a burden to others. But the question might be, what exactly does waiting on the Lord look like for us here and now? Well, it looks like working diligently during our designated times. That's six days a week according to the fourth commandment. In whatever capacity the Lord has placed us. Even when it gets hard. And orienting our lives around the designated time the Lord has promised to bless us with his rest. Paul says in verse 9 that he has given the Thessalonian church an example to imitate. He was working during the designated times. That's what he's talking about here. But we also know that Paul was charged with preaching the gospel to the the, the Gentile world. And so we know that he was... He was um, working in his daily life or his weekly life, the the rest that God has set forth and setting a pattern for the Thessalonian church to follow. And Paul, through his work, again, was doing this so that he wasn't a burden on the church. 
He also says, if anyone is unwilling to work, let him not eat. That's a serious accusation or a serious um, command. And that means that, that we are not to willingly be a burden on our brothers or sisters through the sin of laziness, but we are to strive after our worldly employments because because it is part of being created in the image of God. In fact, it is evidence of our dignity that God has, uh, in, in the means that God has used to, has chosen to use to provide for us. We work diligently, therefore, because we recognize that we are called to work by the Lord and that this fallen world is not our eternity, but we're going to a heavenly home. And we wait with eager expectation for the fullness of this reality through diligently working at whatever the Lord has called us to, whatever the Lord has called us to, whether that's being a mother or a father or a student or a teacher an engineer, an artist, whatever the Lord has called you to do. Diligently working and seeking the rest on the day that he has appointed. Jesus calls um, all who are weary and burdened to come to him, and he promises to give you rest. Where is it that we meet with Christ but through prayer, in his word, and primarily through the corporate worship that we are allowed to partake in. And we'll get more into that later on. He promises to meet us here in this world through those means, and he promises to give us the rest we need. We can hold fast to these promises because we know that he is faithful. He has shown us so through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So we show our trust in the Lord through our willingness to wait for our promised rest. And we wait because this fallen world is not our eternity. There are some, though, who refuse to heed these good commands from our loving God and willingly continue to live as though this world is their eternal home. To make this choice is to sin against God, and Paul instructs the church in how we are to treat our unrepentant siblings in the Lord. Because this fallen world is not our eternity, we must tenderly warn our unrepentant siblings in the Lord. Paul makes some heavy statements both at the beginning and the end of this passage regarding those who refuse to heed the commands that he, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as an apostle, uh, has given He says that we are to keep away from any brother and sister who is walking in idleness. And he reiterates at the end that we should, uh, that we, uh, to, are to mark any of those who refuse to obey and have nothing to do with them so that they may be ashamed. Now, reading this, you might be confused and outraged. What kind of love is this that casts someone out? Jesus would have never approved of the hatred that Paul is spouting here. He taught us that we are to love. Or maybe you rejoice at these statements because you see them as a proof to excuse your own graceless or compassionless behavior toward a struggling brother and sister. Whatever side you fall into, we both need to take verse 15 into consideration because it helps us to understand Paul's heart and therefore our God's heart behind this command. 
verse 15 uh, reveals that this discipline of one who is unrepentant is to be done out of love. We read, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And while Paul here is speaking of church church discipline, many commentators uh, agree that he is not speaking of excommunicating this unrepentant one just yet, given that he has calling the church to, uh, to warn him as a brother and not treat him as an enemy. However, he is talking about there being some sort of separation uh, between, uh, so that this person would be ashamed. And through feeling their shame, they would repent of their sin and be restored. Paul is advocating here, uh, or what exactly Paul is advocating here, is refraining from an intimate relationship with someone who is actively living in, um, in, in blatant sin. Treating this person as though everything, or not treating this person as though everything is okay. Scripture is clear that those who are unrepentant, they will not enjoy the promised blessing of everlasting fellowship with God, but will be cast from his presence for all eternity. Spending, uh, spending eternity completely separated from his goodness and his love where they will experience for all time the shame of their sinfulness. And so the imagery that the Bible gives for hell is not what the culture would like us to think, that it's just one big party, but that is actually communicates unrelenting physical pain and torment and unrelenting mental anguish. Just think about this, the depths of depression or anxiety or even loneliness that you feel here are increased exponentially in hell because there is no goodness there. Only wrath, only the deserved punishment for those who sin against the Almighty God. Therefore, what Paul is calling for here is that the unrepentant would get a taste of this separation now in order to be saved from their wicked ways, in order to be, to be restored back. And so I ask the question, is this not love? You see, love is delighting in and seeking the good of someone else, even to your own detriment. This is something that would be painful for the Thessalonian church as a whole. Don't get me wrong, right? This is a professed a believer, a professed brother or sister in the Lord who is in a very dangerous place because they are living in unrepentant sin, in active rebellion to God. But Romans 10.11 promises that uh, everyone who trusts in Christ will not be put to shame. And our trust is shown through confession of our sin, excuse me, and turning from our wicked ways. Paul is actually seeking the good of the unrepentant through this command since they are in serious danger of being cast off forever. However, if their profession of faith in Christ is true, we know that the Lord will graciously bring them to repentance. And so, as many of you know, church discipline is an important aspect of Christianity and it can be very hard and painful for all parties involved. And I'm sure some of you in here have experienced this pain. You know what it's like. But as we see here in this passage and elsewhere in Scripture, it is commanded by God. 
Paul's statements here are not the first step in church discipline, though. They are a later step that is hopefully never arrived at because through the process, the guilty person is convicted of their sin and they repent. However, that does not mean that we can dismiss what is said here. But we must be aware that this is how, as a congregation, we are to properly act if the elders have marked someone who refuses to obey. And we can do so in hope, knowing that this fallen world is not the end. Will this be painful? Absolutely. But sometimes loving someone well is painful. Especially when that person isn't seeking their own good. We must remember that the goal here is to bring about repentance. And so discipline is never to be done harshly, though it may be perceived from the other as being harsh. Additionally, this is an act of uh, protection for the rest of the flock because we know, we know how easily we are, um, we are uh, tempted to our own sin. We know how wicked our hearts are and how easily led astray we are. So having someone removed is for our own good oftentimes. The elders are responsible for properly enacting discipline for the safety of the flock and for the good of the unrepentant one. They are held accountable to God. And so it is our duty to pray for them, to pray that the Lord would give them wisdom and discernment. And it is their duty to pray for us and to pray for one another and to, to seek the Lord in, for wisdom and discernment. But it's also for us in the congregation to submit to their judgment, to trust what they are doing, to trust that they are seeking the Lord's will. And we must trust them. After all, they are the ones who the Lord has put over us. So it's important that we also recognize Paul's command is not to regard an unrepentant brother or sister as an enemy. It's all too easy for us to become judgmental of someone who is living in unrepentant sin rather than looking upon them with compassion and grace. Too often we fail to remember that we are just like them, helpless in our fallen flesh, save the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has lavished his love upon us. He has conquered our heart in love so that we would be saved and he can do the very same thing to anyone who is living outside of his ways. So we must remember that he is the one who seeks our good. He has the good of all his creatures in mind and his glory as the utmost good. So we tenderly warn, not only because we are commanded to, but because we are commanded to by the God who is love and who knows the needs of all his creatures. We are called to wait patiently for our promised rest by working well in the callings that the Lord has has put place on our life. And one of those things, part of the work as church members, is to warn our brothers and sisters when they need it. However, we can, be also, we can also become so wrapped up in our worldly work that we forget we are called to live as children of God. 
And that leads me to my next point, that because this fallen world is not our eternity, we must work as citizens of heaven. And so what exactly is this work, you might ask? Well, one of my favorite rappers says at the end of one of his songs, my work is worship. And so students in the youth group and Brandon, if you guys uh, can figure out who said that, you'll win a prize. But this is a, my work is worship is a statement that he makes. And that's a profound truth for all of us, actually. Our primary work as Christians is worshiping the Lord, our God. That is the work of heaven. And that's why we read Revelation 4 and 5. We get a glimpse into what is going on in heaven in these passages. And we see that the saints, the elders, the living creatures, the angels, all are falling before the throne of our God, worshiping him singing praises to his name, bowing before him in humble adoration. This is to be our primary work here and now, because we are not citizens of this fallen world, but we have been made citizens of heaven through faith, because we are united to Jesus Christ, and heaven is our eternity. And Paul even says in Ephesians 2.6 that somehow we are even united. We are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus now. Hmm. But too often we, fell, uh, we fall into spiritual idleness because we, refu- we, we forget this proper perspective. We become overactive in our worldly work. We have our eyes fixed on the here and now. We need to be mindful of what our chief purpose is, to glorify God and and enjoy him forever. We need to have our minds reoriented to this truth, that our work is worship. And paradoxically, that work results in rest. Because listen, we are the ones who actually primarily benefit from worshiping the Lord our God. He does not gain any glory We do not add any glory to him other than what he already has when we worship him. But out of his abundant love and kindness, he has granted us to worship him so that we would be able to taste and be blessed with his beautiful life. He welcomes us in to participate in his glory. Just read John 17 and you'll see that that's actually what Jesus is praying for, for us, his people, that we would get to share in the glory that is his. Paul writes that we are not to grow weary in doing good. And a major way that we, we do this is through orienting our lives around our primary work, the worship of our God. Now, One thing that this means is that we must take corporate worship seriously. Because it is here, it is in corporate worship, where we do the work of heaven. So the question that I have for you is, is how many times have you willingly passed on corporate worship because you were exhausted from a busy week? Or how many times have you willingly passed on corporate worship because your child had some activity that you deem to be more important? Or maybe, how many times have you willingly passed on corporate worship because you have a sporting event that you considered to be more important? You understand what, what you are doing, right? 
You are declaring some worldly endeavor to be more important than meeting with the Almighty God who delighted to redeem your life from the kingdom of darkness, who delighted to raise you up out of the pit, to crown you with steadfast love and mercy, to bring you into his kingdom and to bring you into his glorious light. Jesus says in Matthew ten thirty seven and 38 that whoever loves their parents or their children more than him is not worthy of him. And whoever is willing to put anything before worship of him is not worthy of him. And that is scary news. We need to hear that, though, because it reveals the wickedness of our hearts. You are not alone if you are feeling convicted of this. This is true of all of us. And so listen, if you feel convicted, do not despair. But know, know that our God delights to forgive those who confess their sins and who are broken over their sins. Psalm 51 says it is not in sacrifice or in burnt offering that the Lord delights, but in a broken and contrite heart. And that's in the context of of David confessing his sin to the Lord. That is true of our God. He delights to forgive those who are uh, who are broken over their sin. He delights to rest- and he is always willing to restore the joy of his saving presence to those who are broken over their sin, who trust that he forgives those who look to Jesus Christ and trust in his shed blood for them. And so I want to be clear as well. I talked about willingly missing corporate worship. I didn't say that if you have any extenuating circumstances or something like this where lives will be threatened if we come together. That is not what I'm saying about missing out on corporate worship. Uh, But that if you willingly miss out, you need to take what is said here seriously. But another reason why we need to hear this is because we forget that corporate worship actually enables us to better love our parents, our children, and our neighbors. You see, it is here where the Lord pours out abundant blessings upon his creatures. It is here where the Lord promises to meet us in our need, in our brokenness, in our shame, our misery, and and to lift up our weary souls. It is through the preached word where he addresses us and where uh, we are disciplined through the conviction of our sin or we are comforted, we have comfort spoken to our heavy hearts. It is through praying at corporate prayers together where we are reminded that we have the ability to approach the Lord our God and to lift up what is the anguish of our soul to him and that he hears It is through the Lord's Supper and baptism that we are reminded of our union with Christ, the Word, and receive His grace through singing together where we get to um, lift up our voices, singing gladly to the Almighty King who reigns on the throne, who reigns over all things. The one who has claimed you as His and pours out the abundance of His love and kindness into your heart. Todd Billings helpfully explains what this looks like He says, the Father sends the word as an expression of the triune God's eternal love with the purpose of forming a community of witnesses to bless the whole creation in the name of Christ. And if you want to hear that again, you can just rewind and write it down. In worship, God is seeking our good 
And he is seeking his glory by bestowing upon us blessings, forming us as his people in order that we might bless our neighbors and each other. We serve a good God. Secondly, we are not left alone to conduct this work of worship. The risen and ascended Christ, our Lord, along with his Father and our Father, has sent forth into our hearts the Holy Spirit. He is the one who leads us in worship. He is the one who properly enables us to worship the Lord our God and to receive the blessings that the Lord our God pours out on us. He helps us do our worship well. Todd Billings again says that the Spirit makes believers witnesses of the triune God's sovereign love in Christ. God is king, and he elects a people for the sake of blessing the whole creation. A people who are signs of the kingdom of God and representatives of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on in corporate worship. The work of worship, we know, does not stop after the benediction, but it is this work which roots us and enables us to carry out our purpose as God's uh, people to be a blessing to the nations, to fulfill the very promise that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis 12 or 15 or 17, or all three, one of those. Go look it up. So, Listen, if you willingly skip corporate worship, know that you are willingly walking in disorder, out of step with your created purpose. And I can guarantee you that restlessness will follow you. You will will regularly meet with it. Because again, you are not seeking the only one who can refresh your soul and delights to refresh your soul. So we prioritize corporate worship because we have been brought into a new reality, a new age instituted in Christ. We no longer belong to this world. Heaven is our home. And we must strive to keep this right perspective or else we are in danger of becoming overactive in our worldly work and growing spiritually idle. Again, Paul says we must not grow weary in doing good. And this means that we must not grow weary in striving after God's law, which has worship at its core. So listen, if we, if you struggle with this, which again, we all do, know that you have a merciful and gracious God who we can run to, who we can ask for help, who has the almighty power to change our hearts. We need him to enable us to worship properly. We need him to help us receive the gifts he pours out. And listen, he is willing to help. All we need to do is ask. So ask and seek and you will find. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you thankful, with thankfulness in our hearts, knowing that you are the good and gracious God who has rescued us out of the pit of darkness, brought us into your glorious light, crowned us with steadfast love and mercy, made us representatives of Jesus Christ here and now, representatives of your glorious kingdom. Father, help us to do the work that you have called us to for the purpose of glorifying your name.
And Father, help us to see and know the beauty and wonder that you, uh, uh, that we have, we get to participate in with, with corporate worship, knowing that you promise to meet us and pour out abundant blessings upon us. Lord, we thank you that you are good and gracious. We thank you that you have called us ours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, for the benediction here from Numbers 24, or 6, 24 to 26. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace.